Good morning. Welcome to First Christian Church. Glad you're here. As Scott likes to say, there's nothing better you could be doing than worshiping God with his people. That's very true. I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak to you. If you don't know me, my name is Mark. Been here about six years and glad to serve in whatever way I can and uh, looking forward to speaking to you from God's word today. It is task to me to finish uh, lesson five of the five-part series we've been doing on Philippians. Scott taught the first three. Jason McCoy taught last week, did a great job, and then I'll be finishing up this week. Uh, Let's read the chapter through, and then we'll go from, hey, my name, and then we'll go from there. I'm going to read the first 20 verses. We're not going to do verses 20 through 23. If you look deeply into the greetings at the end and you extrapolate fantastic messages from God, it's probably not there. It's just greetings. (laughs) Let's read 1 through 20. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Every year, Australia holds an endurance race that's 543 miles, 543.7 miles long. So 544 miles. It goes from Sydney to Melbourne. It's considered among the world's most grueling ultra-marathons. The race takes the best competitors five days to complete and is normally only attempted by world-class athletes who specially train for this event. They are typically in their 20s, and they are backed by large sponsorship companies like Nike. To run the ultra-marathon, runners must run for 18 hours straight, then rest for six hours, and repeat that formula for over five straight days. They are all crazy. (laughs) 
I'm sorry, that wasn't in my preparation. In 1983, 150 world-class runners converged on Sydney for this event. On the day of the race, a toothless 61-year-old potato farmer and sheep herder named Cliff Young approached the registration table, wearing overalls, galoshes, and work boots. To everyone's shock, he was not a spectator. He requested a race number and joined the other elite runners. As you might expect, when the race started, the pros quickly left Cliff in the dust. The crowds and the television audience were entertained because Cliff didn't even run properly. He sort of shuffled. And we're going to put on screen what he actually looked like. This is Cliff. It's a gif, so it repeats a loop. So after you watch for about a minute, you'll be annoyed and want to turn away. So just beware of that. Many feared for the old farmer's safety, and all of Australia was riveted to the live telecast telecast as they watched the scene unfold. Some said, stop the crazy old man before he kills himself. You can take it down. Five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, Cliff Young came shuffling across the finish line in first place. He won by 10 hours over his nearest competitor and broke the record by nine hours. This is a true story. He became an overnight sensation and a national hero in Australia. Australians were stunned, of course, by the seemingly impossible victory. How had he done it? It turns out Cliff Young had just shuffled along without stopping. He never slept. While all the other runners were sleeping for six hours way ahead of him, he would catch up during the night and eventually pass them and just keep going. He just kept running for five and a half straight days. He explained it this way, and I wish I had an Australian drawl. I, I don't. I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or tractors, any mechanized vehicles. And the whole time I was growing up, whenever the storms would roll in, it was my job to go out and round up the sheep doesn't seem like a big deal, except that they had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres. He says, I would run after those sheep for up to three days long. It took a long time, but I'd catch them. That was his training. Interestingly, professional runners began to study and experiment with the shuffle we saw, and today it's called the Young Shuffle and has been adopted by ultra-marathon runners because it's more energy-efficient. At least three race champions since then have won the race using his shuffle. And all modern competitors now do not sleep when they run the race, just like Cliff. Cliff did not win because he was the fastest, the youngest, the best trained, the most teeth, or in the greatest shape. Why did he win? Because he never stopped running the race. I don't know where you are today, but I am sure that some of you are or have been tempted to give up. Being a Christian and following Jesus is not easy. In last week's message, we were promised, actually in the series, we were promised by Jesus we will have suffering. Following him means there will be suffering. It means life circumstances will not always be easy. It means there are repercussions of decisions we make that we regret. It's not easy. And I don't know where you are today, but I want to encourage you with our big idea to never give up the Christian walk, like Cliff, who just kept going. This final chapter begins with a hinge verse. 
Verse 1 looks back at everything he's just said and also looks forward to everything he's about to say. You notice what it said? Therefore, my brothers, therefore always points back. So let's talk about where have we come so far, and I'll just do a brief overview of the four lessons that came before mine. The message of the book is growth in the advance and partnership of the gospel. That's the theme, growth in the advance and partnership of the gospel. The first lesson we heard from Scott was put the gospel first, Philippians chapter 1. Put the gospel first. The gospel fellowship must be the center of our relationships. Gospel priorities must be the center of our prayer lives. And the advance of the gospel must be the center of our hopes. Week two was focus on the cross. The last part of verse chapter one and the first part of chapter two. We should be striving side by side, not frightened and intimidated by those who are opponents of the gospel, but willing to follow Jesus to the cross. Focus on the cross. The third week was adopt Jesus' death as our own outlook. We are called to engage in the same suffering Jesus experienced. We don't want to, but we're called to. We are called also to pass on the comforts of what the gospel has given us because it's given us great comforts. And remember that Jesus went to the fullest extent for us to save us. We should do the same as his followers. Adopt Jesus' death as our own outlook. And then last week with Jason who spoke, emulate worthy Christian leaders who are doing that. Those with love for others. Those who are proven in the faith. And those whose boast is only in Jesus. And I'll add one to that that a mentor of mine once said, emulate those who are dead because they can't fail you. Because all of us are one step away from giving up the Christian walk, are we not? Don't sit there thinking smugly, I would never do that. Paul wrote, so we wouldn't, because every one of us could. In light of all that, Paul says, stand firm, or paraphrase, don't give up. That's where the title of this message comes from. But this isn't a new idea that he just got to in chapter 4. He said this all through the letter. We just haven't picked up on it. Let me just give you some of the phrases where he did, where he says standing firm or holding fast or pressing on or maturing and growing. You don't have to write these down, but just listen. Chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Chapter 1, verse 10. That you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ which is an amazing verse. It doesn't mean that you have reached blameless perfection in your walk. None of us will do that. It means if we hold on faithfully, he sees us as pure and blameless. He sees us that way. It's an amazing truth. So hold on. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of you that you are what? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Then chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Chapter 2, verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, when Christ returns, I may be proud. Then chapter 3, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. You hear the old apostle? He's near the end of his life. He's in jail. He's ready to die. And he says, I'm pressing on. He could rest on his laurels. He was the apostle Paul. I press on. I press on. Chapter 3, verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. 
And then finally, chapter 317, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You think it was important for Paul that this church he loved and planted finished well? It was hugely important to him to finish well. Therefore, looks back to all that. But there's a verse in chapter 1, in verse 1, that looks forward. And maybe in the ESV you didn't pick it up as much, but if you have another translation, you would have. It's the word thus. Therefore, my brothers, here's the way the NIV translates it in the New American Standard. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, listen, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. The word thus means in this way. It means as I'm about to tell you. So the verse is a hinge. It points back, therefore, in light of all that, stand firm like this, as he's about to tell us. And he gives seven incredibly practical ways to stand firm, to not give up, to hold on, to keep moving forward. And my prayer this week for you has been that at least one of these will resonate with you, that you need to hear from the Apostle Paul by the Spirit of God to hold on in one of these seven or more ways. We're going to list all of them. I'll spend more time on some than others, but we'll go through all of them. And in the back of your bulletin, you can fill in the blanks if you'd like to do that. I do it because it helps me know where the preacher is and when he'll be done. (laughs) Did I say that? The first practical step, verse 2 and 3. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They were probably disagreeing because they couldn't pronounce each other's names. No, that's, that's not it. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The first blank in your outline is find common ground with fellow believers. Listen, these two ladies were godly women. Did you pick up on that? They labored side by side with Paul in the gospel and their names were written in the book of life. These are godly women. They just didn't get along. Happens, doesn't it? I suppose you've never had a, a struggle with anyone else in the church, have you? Look, we all do that. We all are prone to that. So what is Paul's advice for a situation like that? They're letting their personal disagreement get in the way of gospel fellowship and growth. In fact, let's be honest, Their discord was impacting the whole church because Paul had to address it publicly in his letter. The whole church knew about it. So what does he say? He says, agree in the Lord. But he doesn't give us specifics. So it means find common ground in Jesus. What are the things that unite you with your fellow believer? How about the fact that you both serve the same Savior and Lord who died died on the cross so that your sins might be forgiven and you might have a home in heaven? How about that? How about the fact that he's given you a purpose for living? To live your life for the Lord and share with others who might see in you that there's hope for those who don't know what it means to be forgiven. How about that purpose? How about the glory that you know is coming one day when you will be with Jesus forever in heaven where there will be no more sin or pain or sickness or death or sorrow? How about that fact that unites us? There is so much more that unites us than separates us. And Paul says, so find common ground. Agree in the Lord. Choose to do that, my two dear lady friends, he says. So the application for us, decide to agree on what matters to Jesus rather than disagreeing on what matters to me. That's the application. 
It's pretty simple. If you struggle to get along with another believer, stop focusing on your differences and find common ground in the Lord. That will help you and me never give up the Christian walk. Second practical step. This is uh, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The blank's pretty obvious. Choose to be joyful. Now notice right away, why be joyful? What does he say? It's a little verse. What's he say? Let's do some expository study of the scripture. Rejoice what? In the Lord. What he doesn't say is rejoice that your circumstances have improved. Right? So our joy is not found in circumstances. It's found in the Lord. We can always find reasons to be joyful. I just listed a few. Let's name some. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been reconciled to the God of the universe who is no longer our enemy. We have a purpose for living. We're on gospel mission. My life matters for something. We have an eternal home in heaven, a hope of glory that will last forever with perfection. And in the meantime, I've got the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life to convict me when I sin, to encourage me when I fall, and to help me keep going. And that's just my spiritual blessings. Do we not also have material blessings? I'm not going to list those. You know what they are. We can always find reasons to be joyful if we will try. If we will just look. And how long do we do that? What's the verse say? Let's read it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. This is a lifelong pursuit, a practice of being joyful in God. That's the choice before us. The application is not hard. A Christian who chooses to be joyful will live above their circumstances rather than be controlled by them. Their eyes are on their blessings, not their troubles. And they choose to be joyful so they won't give up easily the Christian walk. That's what Paul's saying. Is that you today? I don't know where you are. Is that you? Do you need to choose to be joyful? God's talking to you. Listen to him. Third practical step from Paul, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, before I tell you what the fill in the blank is, this is a hard word to translate. In fact, I looked up seven translations. Every one of them is different. But if you read them all, you get the sense. Gentleness, see that NIV, gentleness. New Living Translation, considerate. Good sense is another one. Graciousness. Courtesy. Reasonableness. How about forbearance? Some of you who know the older versions, forbearance is a word you're more common, uh, familiar with. Basically, the best way to understand it is we know what it's the opposite of. It's the opposite of contentious, self-seeking attitudes. A, con- a spirit of contention that is self-seeking, all about me. It's the opposite of that. That's why it's translated gentleness by some, courtesy, reasonableness. Paul is saying don't promote yourself. So the word that I chose here is selflessness. It's the opposite of self, selflessness. It means avoiding the self-sins. What are the self-sins? Self-righteousness. I've reached it. I've attained. Look at me. Self-pity. I'm just, oh, everything's horrible. I'm, oh, my life is over. Self-pity. Self-confidence. I can do anything. Self-sufficiency. <laughs> it's all within me. It's all within me. I, I hate that on television. It's all, it's all in you. It's all within you. If you just look inside, you can find what you need. Garbage. Look outside to our Savior. When I look inside, you know what I see? I see a depraved heart. 
Self-admiration, self-love. These are the self-sins. This word means turn from those to seek the good of others. And look, he just gave us the example of Christ in chapter 2. Do you remember what he said? Jesus, who was in the very form of God, gave up equality with God to take the human form of a servant, be humbled, and die the humiliating death of a criminal on a Roman cross. The God and Lord of the universe did that. That's not self-seeking. That's selflessness. That's what we are to emulate. That's what we should be like. And why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. Did you catch that in the verse? The Lord is at hand. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus walked into this room today, which of us would run up to him to immediately tell him how great we are and all the things we accomplished this week? Isn't he impressed? None of us would do that. In humility and awe, we would worship him. Would we not? Well, guess what? The Lord is near. We just don't see him. So because he's near, choose selflessness. Don't promote ourselves. The application here is simple. Put other needs before our own, like our Savior did. That helps us not give up the Christian walk, because it's not about me. Fourth practical step. We'll spend a little longer on four, five, and six. Fourth practical step to read verses six and seven, then fill it in. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what are the words? It's like a crossword puzzle. You know where I'm going. (laughs) Replace worry with prayer. Replace worry with prayer. Did you notice we have a lot to be worried about in life? I don't mean to discourage you, but I'm going to name a few things. We worry about our health, our family, our kids, our friends, our pets, our job, our money, our church, our country, the weather, danger, wars, terrorism, the economy, the elections. Goodness, we worry about what other people think, what might go wrong, what could go wrong, what we should have done, what we ought to have done, what we could do. The the list never ends. We are pros at worrying. We're really good at it. Notice Paul doesn't just say, stop worrying. Oh, well, if you just told me earlier, I would have done that. It's not what he says, is it? He doesn't just say, stop worrying. He gives us a replacement activity. Because you can't just stop the one. You replace it with something else. That helps you. What's the replacement? Prayer. Okay, why prayer? Why does prayer help us stop worrying? Well, let's, let's stop and think for a minute about our God. Let me just give you three verses to think about who God is and some truth about him. 1 John 4, 4, a verse that changed my life when I was in high school. I was timid and fearful because I was six foot six, 240 pounds. Right. I was a fearful young man. And this verse helped me. 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Oh, God is with me. I have no reason to fear. Greater is in he that is in me than he who is in the world. And, and I feared Satan and demons and all sorts of crazy things when I was a kid. And this verse changed my life. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's easy to memorize. That's tweetable if you're on that social media Chris talked about. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What about this truth? Romans 8, 28. You know it. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. So this God who's greater than anything else is working for my good. 
I like that combination. The all-powerful, all-sufficient, sovereign God is working for my good. Well, why would he do that? One last verse, 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So what now? The all-powerful, all-sufficient God who is working for my good does that because he cares about me? He cares about you. That's the truth of Scripture that changes you. That's why you pray, because that's who your God is. You run to Him because He's all-powerful, He's working for your good, and He cares deeply about you. Why would you not turn to Him? Let's see what else the verse teaches us, though. When should we pray according to verses 6 and 7? Did you catch that? In everything. Very simple. If you find yourself worrying about it, then pray about it. Easy formula. If you're worrying about it, pray about it. Well, what types of prayers and what form does it take? And do I have to say, our Father who art in heaven? Well, look what he says. He uses three words. Prayer, supplication, requests. Three different words. The point is, it's not the type of prayer and the way you pray. It's just that you pray. Just pray. Well, is there a special way we should pray? Yeah, there is, according to the verse. Did you pick it up? With thanksgiving. Mm, there is a special way. We are to verbalize to God what we are thankful for in the midst of our anxiety. It is not easy to be thankful when you're worried. It's not. It's all-consuming. I worry most about my work. Those of you who've heard me preach before, I've said it. I won't belabor it. I worry most about my work. It can consume me. I, I do not find it easy to pray when I'm worried. I want to solve the problem when I'm worried. And men especially think they can solve anything. But that's not what God asked me to do. He asked me to pray. And he says, be thankful. So choosing to thank God for his blessings when you're struggling is a great reminder of what he's done in the past that he'll continue to do in the present and in the future. That's why you remember to be thankful. Oh yeah, God's got this one. Oh yeah, he's working for my good. That's right. He cares for me. So what's the promise of verse 7? If we will do what he's asked. What's the promise? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's good news and there's bad news here. The bad news is he did not say, and God will immediately remove whatever difficulty or obstacle it is that you are facing. Ta-da! It's not what it says, is it? says God will grant you his peace. But let me ask you a question. What do you think from God's perspective we need most in life? Do we need a smooth path with no obstacles or difficulties? Or do we need the peace of God as we walk through those? I know some of you would be like, I need a smooth path. That's what I need. Okay, stop and think for a minute about your kids. I have a daughter turning 20 this month, a son 18, another son 16. When they were younger, I prayed for God to protect them, care for them, watch over them, smooth their way, just a normal prayer a parent has. As they got older, I realized as I watched that when difficulties came in their life, guess what happened? They grew up. They matured. They changed. And then I thought, well, that's the same with me, isn't it? Which of you sitting here today hasn't been through struggles in your life? And which of you here today can't say that you're better because of it? And you've matured and you've grown and you've learned some things along the way. You are a deeper, more mature person with a character that is refined. 
That's a lot better than just a smooth path and I'll just skate my way through. That's a shallow life. God knows that, just like we know it with our children. And so the promise of God is not to get rid of the pain. The promise is to give you peace in the middle of pain. Let's talk about it. God uses the storms of life to teach us lots of things. Humility, dependence, trust. He uses the storms of my life to empty me of self-reliance and pride. I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. He uses the storms of life to grow our faith, to enlarge our vision and our understanding of God and his kingdom and what he's doing in the world and what really matters. He uses the storms of life to make us more like Jesus. That's what we're saying. He makes us more like Jesus. And that's the ultimate goal, to be like our Savior, to be like our Savior. The, the contemporary song, some of you may know it. I've heard it on the radio. It has it right. Sometimes he calms the storms. He does. And other times he calms what? His child. His child. It's true. So how do we apply this? Can you imagine how our lives would change if we replaced worry with prayer? Here's my challenge for you. Every time you begin to worry, and I practiced this this week because I was going to preach to you. You have to put in practice in your own life what you're going to preach. Every time I began to worry, a little alarm bell went off in my head. Time to pray with a thankful heart. Time to pray with a thankful heart. Every time I started to worry, ah, I have to thank God again and pray because I knew I was going to preach to you and I don't want to be a hypocrite. <laughs> it helps. It works. It gives you God's peace. It's not instantaneous. You may have to keep praying and keep thanking God for a while. It's not a magic wand. He's not a fairy. But practice this. Replace worry with prayer with a thankful heart. Then you will never give up the Christian walk. That's what Paul's saying. Fifth step, verses 8 and 9. Fifth practical step. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The next words in your outline, fill your mind with what is good. Wow, this is a learned practice to turn our thoughts away from evil and toward what is good. This is all through scripture. This isn't just Paul saying this. Go back to Psalm. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He's constantly thinking about God and God's word and what God has said and who he is and what his plans are and what he wants for me. It doesn't mean you quote scripture 24 hours a day. But it means his word is deeply embedded within you. And it doesn't happen by sleeping on it at night. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or the words of Jesus, John 17.17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And one last verse, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How are you doing with renewing your mind? 
Again, I'm not preaching at you. I don't know which of these God's working on in your heart. I don't know. But you're listening to God. So how are you doing with renewing your mind? What do you watch on TV or on the Internet? What books do you read? What movies do you see? What radio stations? What music? Here's the question. How do you entertain yourself? If you held up Paul's standards here to that, would it match? Is it true? Honest? Is it honorable, worthy, noble? Is it just or right? Is it pure and holy? Is it lovely and beautiful? Is it commendable, admirable, pleasant? Is it excellent? Which, by the way, in Greek, that was the highest virtue possible. Excellence. Is it the best? Is it worthy of praise? Real simple. Can you tell your mom about it? Paul says we have to practice these things in verse 9 not going to happen overnight. It's a habit that we develop by choices we make over time. And notice we're supposed to emulate, imitate others who do it well. Do you know anyone who's a good example of filling their mind with good things and avoiding bad? Then follow that person. Practice what they do. Follow their example. And the promise is really interesting at the verse, end of verse 9. He says, the God of peace will be with you. Do you remember what the promise was for the last practical step? Replace worry with prayer. The peace of God will be yours. Now he says the God of peace will be yours. He just switched it. Which means we will experience the presence of God in a fresh and meaningful way in our lives when we fill our minds with what honors God. I don't know how he does it. Paul says he will. So here's the application. What do you and I fill our minds with? Are we practicing avoiding evil and choosing what pleases God? Or, and I'm guessing this is a lot of us, are we just careless? I doubt very many of you are like, well, I'm just going to choose to go out and think about things that God would hate. And we're just careless. We're just careless. Song comes on, we listen to it. Show comes on, we watch it. Eh, it's got a little bit of this, a little bit of that in, but whatever, it's funny. I'm just like you. I understand. I'm careless too. But does that accomplish what God wants? Don't be careless with our minds. It's the greatest treasure you have, your mind. Don't be careless with it. Deliberately choose to think thoughts that honor God rather than displease Him, and you won't give up the Christian walk. But that's a choice. Is that where God's talking to you? I don't know. If He is, listen. Sixth, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. All right. That verse, verse 13, extremely popular. Yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or through him who gives me strength. That verse is used all over the place. And most of it is wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry, it is. Let's talk about it. Let's see what he's saying. Paul is not saying we can do anything we put our mind to. That's not what he's saying. That we can accomplish anything we set out to accomplish. No. That we can achieve any goal we set. No. That we can triumph. Ah, this is tricky and some of us have done this. Don't feel guilty that we can triumph athletically, that we can score the goal, make the basket, hit the shot, throw the pass, win the game. 
You see that a lot on TV. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and he wants me to crush my opponent. No. In the context, he's talking about what? Context is king. Being content in the circumstances of life. So, the fill in the blank is learn the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. What did verse 11 say? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We desperately need to learn to be content. We Americans are not a content people. We're never happy or satisfied. We we are the most blessed, richest nation on earth, but we're always striving for the next big thing, the latest technology, working toward our goals to get over the hump, to become more secure, to complete the next project, to get a little more financially sound, to get to the next stage of our life, just to, if I could just, I just want to, I'm just, we need to learn to be content. Paul says two things about contentment here. Did you catch it? He says, you've learned contentment when you can handle both good and bad. You see that? We aren't thrown off by having plenty or not having enough. We aren't phased by an abundance or a need, a lack thereof. We can handle both. That's contentment. And the secret, he says, what is the secret? The secret is our focus, which is the strength that is found in Christ. What does that mean? It means we're not saying, I can do this, I can do this. It's not self-sufficiency and self-reliance, I can just do this. It's strength that's found in God, through Him who strengthens me. It is a complete reliance on your Savior and Lord in the middle of your circumstances that are difficult. That is contentment, and that's the, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. you want to tweet something else. Contentment is not based on the ever-changing circumstances of your life. Contentment is found in the never-changing strength of God. I'll say it again. Contentment is not based on the ever-changing circumstances of life. It's found in the never-changing strength of God. It's your rock. It's your foundation. Paul had learned this. Why do you think he's talking? Think about what Paul went through in his life. He's now an old man in prison, and he's saying, I've learned to be content. Bring it on. That's what he's saying. Bring it on. A blessing. Praise God. A trial. Praise God. I'm not there. (laughs) I'm not there, folks. I'm not preaching to you because I figured this out. I'm preaching because that's what the Word of God says. We all need to learn this. He had learned over many years of joy and pain that the foundation of his life was not his external circumstances, but his eternal Lord. Not his external circumstances, his eternal Lord. So, you want to apply this? Do you want to be content? Do you want to know how to handle the pressures of your life, the stresses, the difficulties, without it crushing you and you being a roller coaster emotionally? Then take your eyes off the circumstances and put them on your Savior. Find your strength in Him daily, whether you experience good or bad. If you learn that truth, you will not give up the Christian walk. Eyes on Jesus, folks. Eyes on Jesus. The last practical step. Have I filled in all the blanks for you so far except the last one? Yes? Okay. The last practical step, verses 14 through 20, uh, it's the word gracious. Practice being gracious. And let me tell you why I put that as a summary for this. So, verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know 
that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You understand the context. They had sent him financial support. All right? That's the background to why he's writing the letter. Thank you. Thanks for providing. He loves this church. He planted the church. They love him. They've supported him through the years. They sent him a gift, and he appreciated it. But notice how gracious he is in responding. There's lots of ways to respond. He's gracious. He thanks them for their kindness in supporting him. When I was a teenager, I don't know where I learned this, probably just because I'm a sinner. People would say something kind to me, and I'd be like, nah, it's nothing, whatever. And my dad pulled me aside and said, say thank you. When someone compliments you, just say thank you. I appreciate that. I've never forgotten that lesson. Like they're going out of their way to tell you something. Thank them. Don't be so proud as, that's ah, nothing, no big deal. Uh, who am I? Thank them. Paul does. Thank you. I appreciate what you've done. That's grace. He commends them for their history, though. Do you see that? He recalls every time they've supported him and points it out. You have a history of doing this. That's who you are. And God is pleased with what you've done, he says. He gives praise to God for what they had done for him. He says, your gifts are like sacrifices to God. That's who you're really serving here, not me. But I'm blessed and I'm thankful. I'm supplied. I have everything I need. Here's a content man. And then he encourages them. He turns it right around and says, God will supply your needs now through Jesus as he sees fit. And God defines our needs, not us, right? (laughs) God will supply your needs. Trust him. Trust him, just like you met mine. That's grace from an apostle who had learned over the years what it means to be like Jesus. He's oozing Jesus at this point. (laughs) It's something we can all learn. It's our last practical step. We're a people who've been blessed by a gracious God. Grace, in turn, should flow from us to others. Scott says a great phrase. We've been blessed to be a blessing. We've been graced to, to grace others. I like that. Blessed to be a blessing. I'm not the end. I'm the conduit. I'm the means. It doesn't end with you. Give to others. Then you won't give up the Christian walk. Each of these things helps us stay in the race, and keep going forward. Paul's challenge to the Philippians was to stand firm in the Lord. It's his beloved church, and he gave them seven very practical ways to do that, to keep growing in their Christian walk. Did any of these ring true with you? Has God spoken to you in any way this morning and said, you know, you could work on that one? Common ground with believers you don't agree with. Find common ground. Choose to be joyful, It's a choice. Be known for selflessness, not self-promotion. Replace worry with prayer. That alarm bell, time to pray, be thankful, time to pray, be thankful. Fill your mind with what is good. Don't be careless. Choose to fill it with what is good. Learn the secret of contentment. Eyes on Jesus, eyes on Jesus. And practice being gracious. I hope and I pray that at least one of these hit home with you today. If it did, don't ignore the Holy Spirit. Submit to the work of the Lord in your life 
and ask him to change you in that area so you don't give up the Christian walk. He saved you. He's given you a home in glory. Now walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we are a grateful people because we have been given blessing upon blessing. Sometimes, and forgive us, we just forget. But we are thankful for our Savior,